Welcome to Level with Emily Reese. This is a special episode, our 100th episode. We've had so many great interactions with composers of game music, and some of our favorite time spent with composers finds us talking about all kinds of music, not just music and games. In fact, the first time I met composer Gary Scheiman in person, who's done all the music for the Bioshock series, he did the VR game Torn, he did the Destroy All Humans series, the Middle Earth series, and Dante's Inferno, to name a few. Anyhow, the first time I met Gary, we ended up talking at great length about our favorite music from the broad world of classical music. The playlist for this episode is a little out of control in the best way possible. It includes examples from all of classical music, except for the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. We've known this 100th episode is coming for a long time, obviously. I mean, just by counting. Uh, but I just, I don't, I don't know. I just, it just seemed like it'd be nice to just chat with you. And I, I one of my fondest memories that's Gary-related is uh, the first time we got to meet in person. And I think it was in Boston, right? And we were at Legal Seafood or something. Yes, that was uh, at PAX East. Yep, yep, many years ago now. And I just remember we just kind of happened to get seated maybe across from one another or something and started talking about the music we like, and it was so fun. And, uh, you know, you introduced me to some new things, and I remember introducing you to Franz Berwald and... (laughs) Right, and uh, And you're, you're the first person I've ever met who was like a huge fan of Rameau. Oh, yeah, huge. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which uh, caused me to actually go back and listen to some of his music. I, play, I remember playing some of it when I was, uh, you know, really, you know, in college and studying the piano. I, 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 I guess it was like harpsichord music that was yep. set for piano or something like that. Yeah. So, well, that's great. Didn't, was Rameau the guy? No, that was, um, there was a, a French... Uh, composer who conducted by pounding a stick on the ground, a big really, but his name, yes, and his, and though his the way he passed was was uh, was both you know terrifying and uh, and sort of <laughs> <laughs> interesting because he actually instead of pounding because he didn't conduct in the way that we think of conducting, he actually would pound a stick on the ground and like wow, and it was. It was um, it was uh, vertical, you know, yep. and apparently he hit his own foot, and it it became injured and infected, and it, he died. <laughs> well, that'll teach you to conduct like a fool. There you go. <laughs> God. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Which reminds me, there was a, there was a uh, years ago. I remember reading about a Mexican conductor who was conducting an orchestra and got so carried away that he actually impaled his left hand with the baton. <laughs> But kept conducting. Um, <laughs> amazingly enough, was they had the this That's passion to, to like just to pull a pull a uh, handkerchief out of his pocket and wrap it around his hand and keep, keep the thing going. You know? The show must go on. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
No, I don't think Rameau can. I don't honestly know much about him if he, in terms of if he. I would imagine back in those days, a lot of those guys conducted their own music. I'm sure that's how that happened. Um, but he was famous for being, not for, you know, for his operas, but very late in life. I mean, he was a late bloomer in, ter- in terms of, he was known as a philosopher and, and kind of a th- theor, um, theor, what's the word? Yeah, I mean, yeah, he he was, you know, he wrote treatises on music theory and all that, and he was like in his 50s when he got quote-unquote famous for music, and, and then it was his operas. He didn't really write a, very much keyboard music, which is a shame, because it's all absolutely wonderful. And, you know, when you were saying that you were learning some of that on piano, it it it's just a different thing, isn't it? The, you know, and I mean... It was written for an instrument that really doesn't have volume control in most instances. Right. And, and, it, and it gives it this really important character that can easily get lost on piano if, you know. And I think that's where performance practice comes in and where people kind of start to lose interest in classical, you know, when you're like, well, but really it should sound like this. And... And, you know, you're not, I'm not trying to be a dick when I say that, but, you know, it was written in this way for this instrument, and you can play that stuff on piano, but it, you know, it helps to kind of keep those things in, in mind. If you're trying to be true to the piece itself, I mean, there's also something to be said for taking a piece of music and interpreting it in a like musical Glenn, way. Like Glenn Gould playing Exactly. Bach. Exactly, it, and it's it, it's a different thing. He just yep. he's basically reinterpreting it or rearranging it for piano, and it's quite beautiful. It's exquisite, yes. but it's it, it really is sort of reorchestration or something of in a way. It is, but uh, the thing with Glenn Gould, though, the thing with Glenn Gould is he still didn't over emote when he took because of course Glenn Gould's super famous for taking the music of Bach which again also written for harpsichord not pianos did not exist yet but but Glenn Gould was very into like later in life not not so much earlier but he was so into the tempo markings that Bach used and I mean he was trying to be real literal with that stuff much later in life and you know then there's other pianists who will take Bach and just like completely over romanticize it. And I don't I don't mean over romanticize in a pejorative way. It's just you know what I mean? So it's just a and I don't really think Glenn Gould did that very often and that's why he's one of my favorite Bach interpreters for piano. Sort of, he keeps getting re, re uh, um, discovered by different generations. So when the yeah. first generation discovered Bach again, you know um, uh, Mendelssohn, I guess is often considered yes. critical to that. Um, then, then he, it, it became huge, and then many romantic uh, interpretations, and they de- it definitely got 
over romanticized, you know, the Stokowski yeah. orchestration of uh, of the uh, the D minor Toccata and Fugue, which is just so over the top, and, and yet it's sort of it's beautiful it's still because wonderful. the notes are yeah the notes are so incredible, you know exactly, and yet and yet you can you, you can criticize it or you can say it's kind of cool too. I don't know. It's it, I, I I'm I'm not so orthodox to think that it has to be one way. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah, definitely. But and but then you you had the, the that sort of change when you had uh, I don't know maybe in the in the mid late twentieth century when you had all these uh, uh, you know performers who wanted to use uh, harpsichords. Yep. In the uh, 60s. And even wanted to play play Mozart on pianos that were Mozartian. You know. Yeah. Uh, chords and shit. Yeah. Exactly, you know, yeah. and you know, and and you know, when I hear that music, I always go, you know, unfortunately, the pianos just got better. Yes, and it, and it, it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> much better. better on like a great piano. Yeah, maybe maybe that's our prejudice. I don't know. No, but I I kind of prefer the modern piano to the uh, yeah early Christophori instruments or whatever. Oh, definitely. I mean, those early pianos were problematic for a million reasons because they were trying to figure out how to get to the piano. Okay, I got to break in here for just a minute because this next music example compares the sound of a modern piano with what came right before the modern piano, which was an instrument called the forte piano. The forte piano is what composers like Haydn, Mozart, and Beethoven played during the classical era. So this is in between the piano that we now know and the harpsichord. So there were other iterations of the piano before the modern piano came into being, and uh, one of those things was called the forte piano. So that's what Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven all played during the classical era in the 18th century, although the forte piano started changing a lot around the time Beethoven was writing in the late 18th and early 19th century. In fact, uh, you'll find people who will attribute those changes directly to the way Beethoven was writing. Anyway, this example you're going to hear is tricky because the modern piano in the in the example isn't tuned to the same key as the forte piano. So when they're playing next to each other, it might sound kind of bad tuning-wise, but what you're listening for is the difference in the actual sound of the piano versus the forte piano not if they're in tune with one another, because they aren't. Anyway, here it is. fascinating instrument because it's one of the most complicated bits of uh, mechanical technology ever invented. Yeah, and out of tune all the time. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> it's a and whole so, other conversation. Why, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you ever uh, any of any anybody listen, I don't know if this is if this is going to be part of what we're. Oh yeah. <laughs> on the air. Yeah. No. Definitely. <laughs> okay, but you know anybody who's ever recorded and has a piano in the recording session knows it gets tuned every time yep. before a session because to. they go out of tune and 
They, uh, you know, they're constant. You have these tightened strings, and they just they want to go back to stasis. You know, yes. they want to loosen up, and they want they want to get rid of all this stress. Yep. And so they, and then someone has to come in and re-stress the strings. Fortunately, the strings are not alive, and they don't really yeah. have any feelings. <laughs> That we know of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I I went down a rabbit hole when I was in uh, grad school of learning about tunings and temperaments and the different ways that keyboard instruments were tuned in the Baroque era and after, which is a whole, I mean, it's just... I got got lost pretty quick and I ended up doing this whole paper on... Mozart's Don Giovanni and the keys it was written in because of the way keys sounded then, because of keyboard instruments being out of tune all the time. It's just, but what my point is, one of my favorite CDs that I have is of this um, piano instructor from some college in, I, I want to say like Tennessee or Kentucky or something like that. And she plays a handful of Beethoven piano sonatas. On a keyboard, on a on a piano that's been tuned in one of those earlier temperaments that maybe Beethoven was familiar with, or that Bach was using, you know, tuning maybe in thirds as opposed to you know not equal temperament like how pianos are now. And but wasn't Bach wasn't Bach uh, one of the proponents of tempered tuning because a well-tempered yep. clavier? Yep. He, uh, yeah, he wanted to be able to play in all the keys, you know, I mean, because right. you, you couldn't, uh, and, and it was really limited. And so even then, though, well-tempered is not equal temperament. So equal temperament is still a, a pretty, pretty far distance from what he was talking about. But he, you know, I mean, yeah, he was really into that. And that's why he wrote those volumes, because he could write in all well, 24 oh, geez, keys, yeah. yeah, 12 major, 12 minor, and he did that twice with a prelude and a fugue each time, so <laughs> just, let's just rattle off right. 48 it- piano works to talk about tuning, yeah. So yeah, he's he was he was into that too, and it and it was controversial because because of the nature of the mathematics of pitch, you know, a, a keyboard instrument or any kind of stringed instrument is always, if possible, going to have to make adjustments on the fly, like a like a violin or a cello would, or they're just screwed, like a guitar or a piano or a harp. You know, I mean, they just they have right. to make certain things out of tune on purpose. And non and non fretted uh, yeah. string instrument has the option to tune on the fly yes. to anything. Yes, that's very um, true, except for open strings, of course, but yes, yes. Right. Yep. Exactly. So yep. that's the, the uh, advantage of strings versus a piano, which is a fixed tuning every time. You can change yep. the tuning, but yep. although pianos that have been tuned in tune or any kind of tuning for a long time tend to want to return to that. So it has a, it has so a memory, as we all as we know. Yeah. As, which is why you don't want to leave your piano untuned for too long because it will it will eventually like being untuned and go back to that. Gary, when did you do you remember like 
when you first got hooked kind of in classical music, like one of the first concerts you went to or a piece that you heard that just kind of blew your mind? Yeah, I was in, I was like maybe 13 or 14 when I first started to play the piano. And I mean, obviously I was aware of and and, uh, enjoyed classical music, but I wasn't passionate about it until I started playing it at the piano. And then I became very passionate about classical music. It was really being able to get my hands on it and look at the notes and learn pieces. And that to me was uh, obviously life-changing because here I am so many years later and still essentially fascinated by the same sorts of things, you know, the sounds of, of instruments and music and even though it's changed, it's, in some ways it's changed, in some ways it's still this, so much of it is the same too. Um, so uh, yeah, that was really, my passion came out of playing the piano and then playing uh, Bach and Beethoven. And I, I wasn't really into Mozart so much early on, although I've come to really love Mozart, mm-hmm. but I, I would say Beethoven, you know, Rachmaninoff, I, li- I liked that kind of music, that Schumann and Schubert and yep. all that kind of. Oh, and Chopin, of course. I loved Chopin and still do. I think Chopin, you know, one of the greatest composers ever. music was really what I played and learned and then and then I became later when I got into college I really became fascinated by 20th century music and started to listening to uh, Bartok and and even you know I was just thinking of Manuel de Falla and uh, the Spanish composers and yeah. Prokofiev and uh, Schoenberg uh, less so early but later I come to appreciate Schoenberg, mm-hmm. but uh, definitely uh, Stravinsky and uh, and um, Shostakovich. especially uh, um, fascinating to me. I just mm. still do love his music. And when I was in, uh, when I was in um, um, Hungary, I visited his uh, his home. Oh, nice. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, it is a modest uh, home. And I remember that was before um, Hungary, you know, I was in Budapest, but uh, before Hungary was in the the Eurozone. So I believe now they have Euros. I haven't been to Hungary for a while. But but their money had Bartok's picture on it. Wow. Which I I always thought was very cool. I've never seen any, any, uh, any, you know, country's 
money with a classical composer on it, but there, there he was on some some bill that I was looking at, and I, and I, should, I, should, I wish I actually had one of those bills. I should have saved one. Talk a little bit more about him and some of the pieces that you really love because he he was another you know I think when I think of Rameau I think of him as this really complicated complex individual in terms of how he was a musician and I kind of feel that way about Bartok too because because he was so into the ethnomusicology but he also was very into uh, music in a mathematical way, but in such a beautiful way. You know what I mean? He was just kind of, he did a lot of different cool things. So, um, yeah, let's talk about him for a second. Yeah, well, certainly Concerto Orchestra uh, is just one of my favorite pieces of all time. And that said, I did not instantly love concerto orchestra. I remember listening to it a few times mm-hmm. and being coming familiar with it. But it's okay. This is you know, this is interesting, cool music. But then it's like you know, sometimes you hear music and it kind of makes us you kind of become a little familiar with it. And then I remember being driving. Uh, in, I think it was in the Bay Area at the time, and, and listening to the radio, and they were playing the Bartok's Concerto Orchestra, and, and it was all of a sudden it just completely spoke to me, wow. and I was I was like, oh my god, it's this magnificent, this is amazing. It like it was like it's like uh, like you hear poetry in another language and you don't understand it, and all of a sudden when you understand it, you go, oh, it's beautiful, oh my god. And then, of course, I started really listening to music for strings, percussion, and cellista, of course. Yeah. It's an incredible piece of music. Yes. Very inspiring to me as a composer. Um, I just loved the way he used chromaticism and dissonance, but he never abandoned tonality. Of the ethnomusicology of his of his uh, 
studies in, you know, because he and, and uh, Zoltan Kodai, mm-hmm. his friend, would go to these little villages in the forests of uh, Morovia, whatever, wherever they were. Yeah. And, and, the back, and they would notate these complex melodic uh, songs that they heard that were just completely local to that region. It's, so it's almost like, you know, like his music has this sort of Hungarian accent to it, you know what I mean? Or Eastern European accent, you know. I just you know love all that and and he was a, he was a, a great man he of course he had to leave Hungary and come to the United States and tragically got so sick yes and died. yeah in Boston or something was it Kusevitsky that helped him out for a bit toward the end and gave him I a commission so. for the yeah I think the viola concerto was his last uh, yeah. work if I recall but yeah he was sick and he didn't have any money and nobody cared because World War II was going on and it was you know yeah. but there was a few people who realized that hey, this is a, this is a great composer mm-hmm. this is really an important yes. important uh, individual that needed to be supported so he yeah so so definitely Bartok is really influenced and I think I think I still hear it in my music at times you know yes that you know going up a step and then back a half step you know that was sort of his um, the, 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 some analysis I read of his music the, the term if you heard the term war motif yeah yeah where it's sort of a motif that keeps you know, reappearing throughout someone's uh, creative life and so he had sort of this war motif of up a step back a half step sort mm. of filling in filling in that uh, whole step or whatever and so that sort of style you know and you hear it a lot of course in the music for strings percussion and celeste and and just uh, yeah so i'm a huge fan of his music know I mean I've become in the, in the last you know five six seven ten years uh, you know Mahler has become really yes. important to me Mahler uh, and that yeah, is a fun one talk about a complicated yeah. individual with a lot to say oh yes, <laughs> oh, yes. he was a deep person I've, I've actually read the Delagrange biography of Mahler oh, wow. which is like Four volumes. Jeez. Uh, it's probably around, I don't know, thousands of pages yeah. on the man's life. So he was a complex, brilliant, fascinating individual. And but and his music, I mean, the music of the late Romantic period, we've lost something because it it permitted composers to use all this really wonderful harmonic language yeah. that we've sort of lost now. And nobody, you know, I mean, and, but it permitted sort of this depth of musical thought to be 
you know? Yeah. Um, and that I don't know that we have that. There, I don't hear anybody's music nowadays that kind of has that deep thinking attached to the music. Yeah, it's it's real. It was such an interesting time when Mahler was doing his thing because, I mean, just that whole trajectory of kind of the dissolution of tonality that just started to just kind of explode around the turn of the century. And then, you know, in that first, what was it, 1913 or whenever Schoenberg did the emancipation of the dissonance. But that was happening so long before... Schoenberg did it, so you can hear, you know, atonal, atonality and atonal um, leanings in Liszt, and uh, definitely Wagner and and Mahler too. And I mean, that's how I think of it anyway. That late romantic, uh, really thick, just I mean, that that's how I think of it. And maybe that's not how you're thinking of it, but when I when I yeah, think no. of that really really um uh, what's the dense kind of uh, harmonies and weird interesting ways to like resolve things or not resolve them and just really pushing the boundaries on what was quote unquote acceptable and and i think right ricard ricard strauss uh also uh yeah famously in uh um salome oh know, yeah yeah where salome uh Brings the head of uh, uh, John John the Baptist, yeah. you know, and, and it's completely atonal. Yeah. And that may have been the first uh, completely atonal moment in classical music. I'm not sure, but I, as I recall, I think it may be. <laughs> Mahler and Strauss would get together. Mahler would want to have these deep conversations, and Strauss wanted to talk about how much money he made <laughs> on his last opera. And he <laughs> so Mahler was had his heads more in the clouds, and Strauss yeah. was was more of a businessman, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. So I, they're just interesting, different personalities, but were definitely both deep brilliant composers, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm. Mahler, of course, was conducting the Vienna Opera for ten for a decade. He was perhaps one of the, the most famous conductor of the Vienna Opera, and which was the most important opera in Europe, perhaps, at that time. Wow. And he was struggling to get Strauss's music performed because, like, Salome was considered risque. So he, he couldn't quite, be, I, I forget if he ever got Salome off the ground. Because it, it, it was it was very conservative. And of course, you know, she appear, she is, appears in a bodysuit, quote unquote nude, you know, yeah. but she's really not. Yeah. But, but that's part of the, her performance, this sort of lascivious dance she does with the head of uh, 
John the Baptist. So, that, but it's it's all 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 fascinating time in history, and it was just it was just such a great time for a composer. It, 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 it's not easy music to write. It's actually because you're just dealing with all this dense harmony and you know and, and trying to and, and thinking about things over long periods of time. Yeah. It's one thing, you know, we composers of film, TV, game music, whatever. We write a three-minute or four-minute cue. That's a long cue. Wow! <laughs> but they were writing music that extended for 20, 30 minutes for a single movement. You know. Yeah, but I mean, and to be fair to you, you're still thinking about the whole soundtrack. You're still thinking about the whole score of the whole game. I mean, not every composer does, but you know, like if you listen to Bioshock or something, you can tell that that is the, from the Bioshock universe and that, you know. Sure. But I know what you mean, sure. like compared to a symphony that's, you know, an hour and a half long or something like that with, you know, it's just, 90 but players. It's just, it's, it's just hard. I think the hard thing, though, is, the, is to have an extended thought that doesn't just yeah. become banal, you know. And that's what Mahler did. He had this extended musical thoughts that lasted for 20 or 30 minutes yeah. and yet it, it all works and and that's just incredibly difficult to accomplish and and uh, and it can't be underestimated and and we're not we're not tasked to do that so i don't think it's i don't think it's something that it's a muscle that we're working on you know yeah. uh, and i think that it's like anything else you know humans are remarkably good at becoming doing something yeah. but it's when you are doing it all the time and really focusing on it so Mahler had to think about you know I can't just have this sort of um, music that doesn't say anything it has to have a beginning and a middle and an end and, mm-hmm. it, ha- and it has to have meaning and uh, just like a good movie you know yep. I mean there's a lot of bad movies but when it, when there's a good movie it it, it has an arc Yes. You know, and it has some meaning, and you come out of it feeling like, wow, you know, I, I just saw Lawrence of Arabia, you know, or something great. And, yeah. Uh, it's profound, and, and it stays with you, and people remember those, you know, events, you know. I mean, one of my favorite ways to symphonies to bring up when you because I, symphonies are so complicated for for people who aren't familiar with a symphony. You know, it's just it can be really overwhelming, and there's all these movements and what the hell, right? But you know, when I think of Beethoven five, his fifth symphony, just how brilliantly that was all planned out from the very first note to the very end of the entire symphony and thinking about that like every movement is connected and and of course other symphonies are supposed to be that way but they can it can be harder to tell you know what i mean but when you're hearing beethoven's fifth you're like yeah this is definitely from beethoven's fifth and yeah. it's just this yeah. whole unit spread over the course of you know 30 minutes or whatever that one is 35 or something 
And yeah, it's, it's an amazing, amazing thing that they did. Maybe I'm old-fashioned in this, but I do believe that there's better and worse, you know, and, and I sometimes get arguments, especially from my son, who likes pop music and whatever, <laughs> when I say, no, that there is better music and it's and concert music is yep. is great, you know, and it, and, it, and there's a reason for it. And he's, he's not, we, we can't agree on that, but I do believe that you know there's a difference between a comic book and Shakespeare yeah and that one one is has longevity and has greater meaning uh, and and will continue to to uh, espouse ideas that are universal and, and are last forever you know versus something that's just sort of a light you know enjoyment at the time and there's and there's room for both I don't yeah. think we need to be fill our brains with intense deep stuff all the time <laughs> yeah. I think that would be that would be overwhelming and, and uh, you know unpleasant almost yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I've been down those pop music argument roads many times it can be really tricky it can be really really tricky but right and you can't win those arguments no. really you know no. it, you, it, unfortunately there's no way to, to you know to prove that other than to say that you know, where are all the other writers from the time of Shakespeare? Maybe they weren't as good. Yeah. You know? In any event, you know, I, I do think, you know, there are greater, there's, I, yeah. I do believe in there's a hierarchy of quality. Well, of course and there I is. Yeah. Yeah. Of course there is. I mean, yeah. You just look when you, okay, let's talk, bring up the well tempered clavier again, the piece that Johann Sebastian Bach wrote to demonstrate that a keyboard instrument can indeed be used in all 24 keys, 12 majors, 12 minors. Are you kidding me? That's insane. And then he did it again. He did it twice. Or like the Art of the Fugue, the, the, the piece that he spent so much time on toward the end of his life that he never even finished, where he's writing, what was it, a quintuple fugue or something, where there's four or five different fugues going on at the same time. And you know, you can't even explain what a fugue is without confusing someone, let alone five simultaneously. I remember when I was in at USC studying music, we had to write fugues. And they're really they're so hard. hard. <laughs> they're really hard to write. There's a lot of rules and yes. and it's like you can write then you can end up writing a fugue and then it sounds like crap, you know? Um, and so but, yeah. but what Bach did was not only Right, and with all these rules, etc., but they become gorgeous yes. and beautiful and, and and fascinating. So that's what that's what makes something great. You know, yep. someone who is capable within the confines of the the rules of that <clears throat> period. And 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 someone could say, well, why would you want to write with rules? Well, guess what? Bruno Mars is the song form has got tons of rules. Oh, that yeah. fit within. Oh yeah. You know, that yep. was about music as 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 thought versus music as um, something else in a way because I think pop music is not trying to compete with Bach in the same sense. 
And me personally, there's loads of pop music and all kinds of other types of music that I absolutely adore. So, you know, I mean. Right. And, and, I, and I do, too. So it's like there's room for all this definitely. music. Um, and uh, it all it kind of makes up makes the universe of music so fascinating. And it also just makes this whole concept of music, like what is music? Why do we love music so much? And mm-hmm. that's a fascinating subject on of itself, you know, because it's like if, if one's looking at it from a purely uh, evolutionary, why do, why do we, what is the reason for music that doesn't help us survive? It didn't help us, you know, uh, capture animals and keep us <laughs> yeah. alive for the 240,000 years that humans have been in our form. I just read a book called Sapiens. Oh, nice. Which is a brief, brief history of humans going back about 240,000 years, which is when they believe that humans first took our sort of present form. Nice. You know, humans who, if they were probably raised today, would probably be just like you and I, you know? Wow. Um, so that's about 240,000 years ago. and um, Did they talk about music in the book? No. Okay. Unfortunately, no. no or or and maybe just remotely, you know, um, because you just, where, where does music evolutionarily, I mean, if you look at, if you look simply at human, you know, evolution as merely always, we have these uh, fingers so we can, catch food or what I mean if you look at it purely from that sort of utilitarian uh, perspective I think you you can come up with all kinds kinds of like well, wow that doesn't make any sense you know so because we love things of beauty yes. and it doesn't necessarily um, have any uh, evolutionary value it just it's just a it's just a wonderful thing that we have mm-hmm. that you mm-hmm. know so we can be very grateful to um, whatever created us, whether if you want to call it God or some universal, amazing, mystical experiment, who knows what that is, whatever it is, uh, it, we can be very grateful that we have this. You know, that we have art. Yep. Yeah, and, and music, and, and, and that we love it, you know, and yeah. uh, we love it from the most simple folk tunes, pop music to Mahler. What uh, specifically with Mahler? What what are some of your favorites? Like, do you have a favorite symphony of his? He famously wrote nine. Uh, nine. Well, there's ten, a ten ish. Ten ish. Almost, almost has been finished, and they say that most of it was in his hand. Yeah. Um, I you know there's so much. Uh, I, I, if somebody is you know because I'm recommending it wants to listen to Mahler. Uh, I would start with the first and the fourth symphonies. Those are two really magnificent. You know, the first symphony, especially, is just so it's definitely approachable and yeah. easy to to. And he wrote that as a young man in his twenties. Um, but you know, I mean, of course, the fifth symphony and the sixth symphony 
are amazing. The set, they're, 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 he, he didn't really deliver shitty, a, a crappy symphony. <laughs> no, he really no. didn't. He didn't slip one up. I mean, like you could look at Beethoven and go, well, the first and second symphonies are not my favorite. Oh, come uh, on. <laughs> <laughs> Those are look, great. They're, they're great symphonies. They are. Beethoven wrote and really, to me, the third symphony is when he became profound, you know. Well, yeah, that was uh, his second era. Yeah, that was his second phase. So, yeah, that makes makes sense. And then from, and even the fourth, so, I mean, the, to me, the first, second, and fourth. But then all the other symphonies are like, you know. Yeah. Just, it, it's just so, so over, over are we the top. We're talking about music. Beethoven now, right? We're talking about Beethoven, yeah. yeah but because <laughs> yeah, he smaller, also wrote nine symphonies, I think, I, maybe right ten. Right now, yeah. this, the, I've been listening to the sixth and the ninth symphonies mm. lately, mm-hmm. and just I mean, they're just great. It's, it's the thing is, it's like um, some. I mean, it took me years to get to the later symphonies of Beethoven. And really listen, and and now that I'm, I'm I waited, it's like it's like all this great music just awaited me, and yeah. now I get to hear it and new so yeah. it, it's a huge undertaking to listen to his music yeah but if you do it if you do it the rewards are so significant uh, it's hard it's hard to underplay it's like if you if you can do it the rewards are like you listen and you're just in it's like an epiphany uh yes. and it's just like oh my god this is this is humanity and it's most beautiful and uplifting and yep spiritual and um, poignant, sad and tragic, all those things. I love talking to you. Uh, yeah. You're so, you know, we, I think we kind of love music in a, a lot of the same way. Yeah. And, uh, so it's like, it's, I feel like it's just talking with a, a kindred spirit. I agree. Thanks for listening to episode 100 of Level with Emily Reese. Huge thanks to Gary Scheiman for talking with us about some of his favorite classical composers and music. What a treat. You can find the full playlist, and it is a long one. And support us on patreon.com slash level. I'm Emily Reese. Sam Keenan is our producer. Say hi, Sam. Yeah. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Level with Emily and learn more about us at levelwithemily.com. Made possible by Adam Selvage at Tiki Web Services and composer Brad Gentle. Level with Emily Reese is a production of June Media Incorporated. <laughs>